what built up to, you know, you getting there to Egypt and then furthermore, your your path to Islam? You think everything's fine, then you're not looking closely enough. The world is really, really not fair. If you don't have a faith, then all these situations simply lead to a feeling of despair. What were the kind of first steps that you took and in 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 that journey of, of learning and memorizing Quran? Um, I mean, you, you have to start with the basics, right? Right, but what was the point where you thought, you know what, I'm just going to drive to Mauritania? I hadn't seen a human being for hours. That's how uh, rural this area was, mountainous. And we happened to come across these uh, nomads. But if you go off this narrow strip of land, there's actually quite a, a lot of landmines in this, which I honestly didn't know about. So I handed it out. And that's the moment that Allah says, I don't burden any soul with more than they can handle, with more than they can bear. So if you've got a really difficult situation, guess what? That means that Allah said, this person can handle this. Life is one big road with a lot of signs, signs and more signs. You gotta make up your mind to face reality all the time, no. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to another episode of Journeys Podcast. Um, we're here um, in, uh, I'm in Mecca and I'm joined by uh, my good friend Jody McIntyre, uh, who is in uh, Birmingham, I believe. And this is the second uh, Ramadan special of uh, Journeys Podcast. Welcome, Jody. How's it going? Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum. So nice to talk to you, one of my oldest friends, mashallah. And um, you know, I always tell people about you because we've we've known each other since before either of us were Muslims. So I think that in itself mm. is an amazing story, mashallah. Um, Jody, if we bring things before then, so you know, we met in Egypt. And at the time, we were both not Muslim, but we were close to Islam. Um, you had been living in Palestine for a certain amount of time. What built up? Because obviously at the time, we were, we were both about 18, 19, you know, to some degree young and a bit reckless. Um, what, what, what built up to, you know, you getting there to Egypt and then furthermore, your, your path to Islam? That's a very good question. Um, so I think first of all, as you mentioned, I learned about the situation in Palestine through my grandmother, actually, who is half Lebanese. So she obviously has that affinity. Uh, I mean, first of all, she was telling me about the, the actions of the Israeli state in Lebanon. And from there, I started learning about Palestine as well. And, you know, it struck me as the biggest uh, injustice in the world. And I think it's an interesting question someone might ask, why does Palestine in particular galvanize and unite Muslims across the world when there's a lot of situations of injustice or oppression in the world? 
And I think it's just the the utter unfairness and injustice of the situation and the the subjugation, if you like, the daily subjugation that people there live under. And one of the beautiful things about becoming a Muslim and embracing Islam, one of the many uh, beautiful things, is the fact that I remember before as a Muslim, you might talk to talk to people about Palestine. You might have to argue your point. You might have to convince people that the Israeli occupation was wrong or unjust. Um, but you might come across Zionist pro-Israeli people. But now, as a Muslim, Alhamdulillah, Wallahi Abim, you can go to any country. I would say any country on the face of the earth, in the East or in the West, in Europe, Asia, Africa, any continent, and you can find any Muslim and they will tell you that Israel is an oppressive uh, apartheid state and they will fully, fully support the Palestinians. So it's a beautiful thing to have that common bond and a common point of view with people across the world, mashallah. You know, Palestine is really deep inside every single Muslim's hearts. We never forget about them. We always think about them. And inshallah, uh, we make dua for them. And this is another big, big thing that has been a huge blessing of becoming a Muslim. And I would really encourage anyone who's... Uh, interested in world affairs or, or you know, uh, situations like this to consider this point is that if you don't have a faith, then all these situations simply lead to a feeling of despair or hopelessness because the world is not fair. If you look around the world and you think everything's fine, then you're not looking closely enough. The world is really, really not fair. But as a Muslim, there's two things. Number one, we firmly believe that we can meet du'a and we can ask Allah and Allah can change that situation whenever and however he wants to, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the other thing we believe is that in the hereafter, in the akhirah, there's going to be the ultimate justice and the people who are most oppressed are going to receive the most reward. And that is a very, very, very comforting feeling. Allah is a very comforting feeling. So I really, I really appreciate that, that part of uh, being a Muslim is the comfort it brings you, knowing, alhamdulillah, don't worry about people who are yeah. oppressed, people who are being killed. They will have a big, big reward, inshallah. Yeah, and I think that's uh, you know one of the one of the advantages as well in terms of uh, uh, the du'a of the oppressed. Uh, we know that you know from the the sunnah that this is the uh, the answered. It's one of the du'as that is answered. The you know du'a of the oppressed, and that's why even as Muslims we need to be careful about you know when we go about our daily business if we are oppressing someone because. Even if it was, for example, a non-Muslim, Allah could still answer 
the dua of them and the um, you know the dua of the uh, um, oppressed is is answered. And I think also, Jody, I just wanted to add on on um, you know a couple of points that you made as well. Like when we also look at these things as well, and if we have some kind of you know heart and we feel for you know whether it's uh, uh, people in Palestine or whether it's Subhanallah the people who have recently um, been hit by a, a natural disaster in, in, in Turkey now, for example. And, you know, to some extent, some of the buildings that were made were made by people who actually, in a way, oppressed some of the people there because they, they built buildings that were not built correctly according to the regulations that the Turkish government had put in place. And as a result, they, they may have um, collapsed when they didn't um, have to had they had those um, regulations in. But to bring it back to obviously the Palestinians, they're, they're being oppressed by an oppressor. And if we have a heart about these kind of situations, would we not want to strive to adhere to our religion uh, as much as we can so that we can, um, you know, ask Allah and Allah will answer, you know, answer our du'as, you know, because, you know, Allah says, that he won't change the, the situation of the people until they change themselves. So if we are, you know, firstly uh, living a life so far away from Islam, can we expect Allah to change the situation of us or even the Muslims at large? And and secondly as well, do we want to make sure that in the Akhirah, we're on the side of the people that Allah is favoring rather than disfavoring? Um, when the balance of judgment is, is being laid out, you know, subhanAllah. 100%. I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. I think in life, we have to distinguish between things we can affect and impact and things that perhaps we can't directly impact. And mm. we have to start with ourselves. Every single person has to start with ourselves. We have to strive to be the best believer and the best Muslim and the best person we can be. Uh, and there's so many ways we can improve ourselves. Learning our religion, mm. building up a relationship with the Qur'an, memorizing the Qur'an, learning about the hadith, the narrations of the Prophet and, you know, I, th I think there's been a bit of a trend uh, recently about self-improvement, this kind of idea of mm. uh, making yourself a better person. But I think as Muslims, we have to remember that we already have a, a blueprint, if you like, of how to be a better person. So we really need to try our best to, to become that, inshallah, or strive to become that. And, mm. you know, just to give an example, I think there's there's a couple of uh, passages in the Qur'an which I really love because they give a kind of summary, a description of what it is to be a believer, for example. So mm. one example... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says uh, at the beginning of Surah Al-Mu'minun, uh, the surah that's called the believers, he says, 
أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قد أفلح المؤمنون الذين هم في صلاتهم خاشعون والذين هم عن اللغو معرضون والذين هم للزكاة فاعلون والذين هم لفروجهم حافظون إلا على أزواجهم أو ما ملكت أيمانهم فإنهم غير ملومين فمن بسغى وراء ذلك فأولئك هم الأعدون والذين هم لأماناتهم وأحدهم راعون والذين هم على صلواتهم يحافظون أولئك هم الوارثون الذين, <تصفيق> الذين يرثون الفردوس هم فيها خالدون Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this passage gives a description of who the believers are the ones who are the ones who are humble and and concentrated in the salah the ones who turn away from silly discussions like ridiculous like gossip and silly things like that the ones who give their zakat the ones who protect their private parts they don't they don't uh, go with different people and things like that and the ones who are honest in their dealings and he goes on subhanahu wa ta'ala and there's another there's another passage I really like in Surah Al-Fuqan Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this is a very, very beautiful passage of the Quran. He says, وَإِبَادُ الرَّحْمَنِ الَّذِينَ يَمْشُونَ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ حَوْنَا وَإِذَا خَاتَبُهُمُ الْجَاهِلُونَ قَالُوا سَلَامًا He says, the, the slaves of the slaves of Ar-Rahman, the slaves of the most compassionate, are the ones who, they walk on the earth like humbly, and when a jahil, when an ignorant person addresses them, qalu salama, they say salam, peace. And you know, subhanallah, mm. things like this are so hard to actually embody within ourselves. You know, like when you mm. come across an ignorant person, like some, you know, things like road rage or someone like, uh, yeah. you know, annoying you in your day-to-day -day life. It's really mm. hard to embody this. But imagine, imagine, subhanAllah, if we can become the, the best believers. And like you were, you were mentioning on a global scale, the impact this is going to have. Wallahi al-Azim, I am certain, I am certain that if every single Muslim and all the Muslims were united as one and being the best worshippers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we could be, and being the, the strongest believers and, and strong in every aspect of our Iman and our life, Wallahi, we would not be being humiliated the way we are. Mm. Wallahi al we yeah. would not be being humiliated the way we are. So we, it's almost like, and this is a message for, first and foremost to myself, it's almost like we need yeah. to take this personal responsibility and I guess it mm. has like a scary implication and a hopeful implication as well.
the hopeful implication is that this is a way we have the power to make a difference. We have the power to to change the situation of the the Muslim nation and the Muslim community by changing ourselves. And of course, there's a lot of other things we can mm. do. We can give charity. We can make dua. We can help in every single yeah. way we can. But we can change ourselves as well. He said, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in that uh, passage. Uh, the ones who spend their nights in sujood and standing in prayer. And Masha is a beautiful passage, Masha. Yeah, mashallah. And, and you know, subhanAllah, Ramadan is one of those months where um you know maybe you can talk on this as well jody but me myself in terms of my journey to islam it's one of the months where um i almost had like these big kind of transitions in my life and allah gave me these kind of opportunities in ramadan where because you're so focused on the quran because you're so focused on the tarawih and praying at night and, and trying to, you know, have that knowledge as well as that worship, right? Because, uh, you know, you and I know, um, obviously, becoming Muslims, we've come from almost zero to, you know, knowing, alhamdulillah, I know, you know, little bits about the information, but mashallah, the brother Jody is, is, is memorized the, you know, the book of Allah. And we've gone from zero to that. And Ramadan is a time where, any Muslim, no matter what level of knowledge they are, it's an opportunity for you to now uh, sit, to read the Quran, to reflect. And there's so much barakah in that time. And if people just sat and reflected and read the Quran and prayed the, the, the Qiyam at night, Allah will, you know, as 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 we know from the sunnah that if you run to Allah, Allah will 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 uh, uh, come to you. You know, the, the more you take steps towards Allah, Allah will make it easier on your journey. And so, you know, getting involved in, in worship on Ramadan, trying to learn about the religion, this is a perfect time because there's so much barakah in khair, the shayateen are locked away, and Allah has given you this opportunity for you to like renew your faith and to take other steps and levels. And like I said, um, uh, for example, there was a brother who invited me to come to uh, Itikaf, um, who Jody knows as well, the brother Muhammad, and, and me and Jody, alhamdulillah, we've had the, you know, experience of, you know, Jody doing uh, Itikaf with the same brother, and I was uh, uh, coming and visiting Jody while he was doing Itikaf, and that, maybe you can uh, comment on, on your experience there, but that um, period of time, the first time that I did Itikaf, it was a real changing moment in my life because just that seclusion in the masjid with nothing else except focusing on the religion raised my iman so much that there were so many bad things that I was doing in my life there were so many people that that were affecting my life in a negative way and the way that my iman was raised through that even though I didn't even complete the whole itikaf even if it's just one day even if it's just one night it raises your iman to the level where 
you have the the will and the desire to just push away so many things that were badly affecting your life or you know whether it's a, a vice whether it's music whether it's you know cigarettes whether it's this whether it's that whatever those kind of things are that um ability of ramadan to raise your iman to help you to give up and 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 to put to aside those things is something that is beautiful and and can be then continued throughout the year and maybe even throughout your life so um that uh, that that verse and especially as this is a, a, um you know going to be released in ramadan kind of brought that to my mind and so i don't know if you have any um comments on that in terms of the itikaf and, and Ramadan as a way to kind of transition yourself to another level of, of knowledge and, and um, you know, level in your religion. Alhamdulillah, Ramadan is my favorite time of the year, to be honest. I've always loved Ramadan. And like you said, it's a great opportunity for all of us to renew our intentions to try and improve ourselves, to try and pick up good habits and get rid of bad habits. And I think a good, maybe one method is to try and pick up a, a new action every day. And also I think something important is to try and pick up things that we can, that we think we can continue with after Ramadan especially charity, especially charity, especially connecting with the Qur'an. Uh, there, was, there was one of the, one of the tabi'in, one of the followers, was, he was a grandson, one of the grandsons of Ali, and he became known as Zain al-Abideen, like the, the best of the worshippers. Because this man was so pious, subhanAllah, so righteous. And someone, someone related about him, they said, so in Arabic, the word la means no. Yeah? And mm. they said the only time in his life that he said la is when he said la ilaha illallah. SubhanAllah. So the only time in his life that he said no, it was when he said there is no deity worthy of worship except Allah in the Shahada. So you know the when you read about the generosity and the, the righteousness of the of the prophets uh, of the prophets, the prophets Allah the Sahaba anham, and the Tabi'in as well, you really get inspired and you want to do more yourself. So sometimes I think in Ramadan, mm. maybe like, for example, if you're in Ramadan and you're feeling more generous than usual, mashallah, maybe mm -hmm. set up a direct debit to some kind of charity that you think is a good charity, that you, you're less likely to cancel it. Do you know what I mean? Like instead of just yeah. doing a one-off or set something up and just say, I'm not going to touch this again, at least till next time I'm done. Because I think we have this habit as human beings of doing a lot in Ramadan, and then after Ramadan, we kind of fall mm. back into our old ways. So sometimes I think, like, yeah. set up regular things. Or, for example, if you're in Ramadan and you're feeling like, I want to read more Quran, 
set something up. Like from now on, I'm going to read mm. this much Quran every day. And, and even after I'm done, I'm not allowed to stop. Like it's like make almost make it an obligation upon yourself, for example. But yeah, Ramadan. Yeah. What can I say? Well, about they're, they're just on that point. It's easier. Everything's easier. Uh, yeah, you know, you want to worship more, you want to read more Quran. Uh, we should really just try. Mm. We should try. I was going to say on that on that point. There's a what you were saying reminded me of of one of the scholars um, in Medina. What he said. He said, you know, it's an amazing saying. He said, make your life, the days in your life, like the days of Ramadan and Allah will make your Jannah like the days of Eid. Subhanallah. And, you know, we've all experienced that amazing time when it's Eid, you know, you finish the fasting, you're eating with family, you're having an amazing time, you're seeing close people that you love, etc. So... If you continue that Ramadan vibe throughout your life and you make those uh, uh, days of your life where you're connected to Allah like you are in Ramadan, subhanAllah, imagine what your Akhirah will be like if you can, you know, make, make your Akhirah like, it will be like every day of Eid, subhanAllah. That's a beautiful, um, beautiful saying, mashallah. And you know, this life really, I think the older I get and the more, experience that the more experiences i have the more i realize that this life really is hard work that's all it that's all it's about is hard work and mm. you know we sometimes we kind of try to almost reach jannah we try to reach paradise in this life sometimes we think mm. If we finish this job or we finish this or we do that, then we can relax. But you start to realize mm. this life is a test. This life is an exam. And we need to be patient with everything that afflicts us. And we need to just try our best and work hard. And however difficult things become for you, you have to remember that there's someone else in a hundred times harder situation than you, mm. a thousand times harder situation yeah. than you. You know, this is a kind mm. of cliche, but it's actually true. Allah, it's true. Especially if you have, if you're blessed enough, you have the opportunity to travel or you just see different people, different experiences. Allah, there's always someone in a way harder situation mm. than you. So, you yeah, have yeah. to try your best. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I don't burden any soul with more than they can handle, with more than they can bear. So if you've got a really mm. difficult situation, guess what? That means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, this person can handle yeah. this. This person mm. is able to deal with this. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never of giving you that test or that trial or that hardship unless he knew that you could do that. So I think that should be a a comforting and an inspiration, inshallah. I can do this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows I can do this. Uh, yeah, of course. And, and um, you know, th this is funny because I think it's true 
in this time. And it's also true across time because I was having a conversation with a brother recently and he was, you know, looking at world affairs and he was kind of saying, you know, oh, the dunya is so crazy right now. This is happening and that's happening, that whatever. And I kind of said to him, you know, okay, there's true that there's lots of stuff that is going crazy. But at the end of the day, in another way, 100, 200 years ago, people would leave their home to try and go to Hajj and maybe they would never return to their family. I mean, so on one hand, there are many things that maybe these trials did not exist 100, 200 years ago, but the people 100, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years, they had equally, uh, uh, you know, difficult trials and tests. And it's like, I don't think that the, the level of burden has changed it's more just the the it's the the form has changed rather than the you know difficulty of the burden you know we all have difficulty in different ways but subhanallah now people can just get on a plane and go and make hajj and they might face other difficulties and things you know but there's other ways that allah has made other things easier it's a very good point i think like you said uh i think there are unique trials of every age if you like just to point mm. on that i remember reading i think it was talking about al-hajjaj ibn yusuf wallahu alam allah knows best mm. but it was saying that under under a certain tyrant there was a tyrannical ruler and it said yeah. that if you went to juma you would only see one row in juma because people were so scared to go out. Can you imagine that? And what about at the time? What about the time when Andalus, Spain, was was uh, taken back by the Christians? And you know, you had to pray in secret. And if anyone heard, if anyone found out you're a Muslim, you'll be killed or expelled or you had to read Quran mm. in secret. Even I've read about, for example, the the that you know, I'm not sure what percentage, but a huge number of the Africans, West Africans, who were captured as slaves and and taken to uh, what is now the USA, um, were Muslim, and they sometimes they had to hide. Yeah the fact that they were literate, let alone the fact they were hafadh uh, of the Qur'an. Do you know what I mean? So, so I've read about yeah. slaves that, you know, wrote the, wrote the Qur'an out by hand in secret from memory mm. without books, without anything. So subhanAllah, it's an interesting point. But I've, ac I've actually spoken to this about, I've spoken about, a certain point with my Quran teacher and I said to my Quran teacher the, the Quran class that I'm in as students to be honest we're very slack we're not good that's my opinion we're not good students mm -hmm. and um, my teacher Sheikh Jalal is from Egypt and I said to him mm -hmm. I said subhanAllah look because we're in the west and we've got so many tools at our disposal. We can go on the internet, we've got books, we've got everything. 
it's almost like it makes us more lazy. And he he yeah. said, yeah, yeah, he said the children in Egypt, you know, mashallah, they, they really memorize their Quran and they memorize their lessons. And like, for example, when I was studying the Quran in Mauritania, in uh, Northwest Africa, the children there, they get their daily portion to memorize and they write it mm. on a tablet with ink. So it's a wooden tablet yeah. and they write their, their whatever portion they're going to memorize that day um, from the Quran or after they've memorized the Quran from other texts, they write it on the tablet mm. and they memorize it all day. And then at the end of the day or the next morning, they wash it off the tablet. So if they haven't memorized it, it's gone. They have they know <laughs> they have to memorize it before they wash yeah. the tablet off. So and and mm. of course like their their memorization is like so much stronger <laughs> than the children in the yeah. West or yeah. other countries. <clears throat> so sometimes I mean I, I, I saw a Mauritanian brother the other day. Um, you know, just just a normal guy, average guy, you know, he, here in, in Saudi. Um, and I, I was like, okay, you're Mauritanian. I said, how many um, how many uh, different uh, qara'at have you memorized? He was like, oh, just just three. Only three. You know, yeah, and, and yeah. that's just like a normal, everyday, you know, average you know, Joe the, guy, you know. You know, that, that's a very good, I was going to mention this. Uh, one amazing thing about, you know, Mauritania like anywhere, has a lot of problems and a lot of uh, uh, negative points, if you like, in the society. But one mm. amazing thing there is the kind of base level of knowledge, the knowledge that everyone has. Yeah. So there's so many examples. I remember once in Mauritania, I went on a, a kind of road trip with a few friends Mm. And we drove all the way the, across the country, which is a, a, a huge distance. If you look on the map, we drove from almost uh, from almost the west to the east of the country. So from the sea, from close to the sea, all the way across till just at the border of Mali. And, uh, you know, that region is, is not that well-traveled, if you like. So... There's a lot of um, army checkpoints and things like that. And especially uh, because I was driving, um, they were, let's just say, slightly shocked, to say the least, <laughs> to find a, a European Not your man. average driver in the middle of Mauritania. Yeah, they, they, the, 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 the whole image of the car didn't make sense to them because it was a European man driving with uh, three, three or four Mauritanian passengers. And um, it's just very hard to explain, very hard to explain. <laughs> but I remember it was, in, it was honestly like like one of those life, life-changing experiences. Um, I could talk for a long time about that. It was only a few days. But, you know, like, like for example, meeting true nomads, like actual nomadic people in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. And they were some of the most generous people, even the Mauritanians I was with, 
were like astonished at their generosity because these people had very very little you know what i mean and we we yeah. we've been traveling for a couple of days and we we're trying to reach a village that was very 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 difficult to reach like you had to drive through mountains and it was very hard even to find a way there and one day we literally ran out of time because like it was getting dark and alhamdulillah we happened to come up like to put this into context we hadn't seen a human being for hours that's how Mm. uh rural this area was mountainous and we happened to come across these uh nomads who you know their their life is they travel through the desert with their animals and um we basically spent the night with them you know they, they they have tents and things like that and um I remember they were they were black Mauritanians, so you get different uh, ethnicities in Mauritania, and these people were like black Mauritanians. Um, the and and um, but you know they they speak Arabic, so you get different tribes, different ethnicities. But these were black Mauritanians who speak Arabic, and um, you know we were talking to the the father of the family, and then he we just saw him kind of like almost like gesture to someone Um, and this other person walked off and we chatted him for about 10-15 minutes and then we realised that he told, he'd kind of covertly told this person to go and slaughter a goat or or I think it would have been a goat and cook it for us. And then the next thing we knew, his wife brought out this huge platter of dates. And like at this point, I hadn't seen dates for six months. Do you know what I mean? So it was just an amazing experience. Um, But like the base, the base level people's knowledge there. So like you'd get stopped at a checkpoint and the soldier or the police officer will be asking you about different ayahs or, or things like this. And like, for example, mm. if you want to attain an ijazah in the Qur'an, um, it's not good enough to know the Qur'an off by heart because everyone knows the Qur'an off by heart. So, mm. like the person who told you he only needs three qara'at, that's one of the things, like, for example, you have to learn at least... Uh, to rewire, so you have to learn at least wash and kalun, um, mm. and then you. One of the amazing things that to attain an ijaza in Mauritania, you have to learn how to write the Quran by hand. You have to learn how mm. to write the Quran by hand. So you memorize the Quran off by heart. You learn to rewire, and then you learn another text which teaches you how to write the Qur'an from memory. And then the teacher will test you. So the teacher will say, write this page or write this surah. And, you know, that might sound like something straightforward, but there are lots of parts in the Qur'an where the word is is not quite written how it's pronounced. So, for example, 
the word hava, hava. It's just written ha, val, aleph, but you pronounce it as if there's two alephs. You don't say hava, you say hava. Or for example, anywhere in the mushaf where you see a small letter, like a small wow, or a small aleph, or a small ya, that letter has been uh, added in by later generations to show the reader how to pronounce it. So if you look at the original Mus'haf, a lot of the symbols and letters that are added in today to aid with pronunciation were not there. So what the scholars decided mm -hmm. is that, of course, they didn't want to take, you know, we can't change any letter of the Qur'an. We have to preserve yeah. the original Qur'an as it was written. So they decided to write these small letters, like, for example, in the name of uh, the Prophet Dawood, you see that there's a Dal, Wow, and then a small Wow, and then a Dal, to show you Dawood. But originally, that small Wow mm. wasn't there. Um, yeah. Yeah, Mauritania is an incredible place. Mashallah. Um, Mashallah. So, um, stories. Just, just on, on what you were saying, actually, I was uh, in an exhibition the other day. Um, it, there's a exhibition, hopefully it's still on um, at the time that we release this, but it's actually in the Hajj Terminal um, in, uh, in uh, Saudi, in Jeddah Airport. Uh, it's an Islamic art exhibition. So they have, you know, various different um, things from different Muslim countries. And they also have an exhibition just about Mecca and Medina, um, and, you know, different art pieces, um, you know, on those subjects. And they do have um, uh, uh, some of the original manuscripts as well from a long time of some of the Qur'an. And also in Medina, there's an amazing uh, uh, exhibition on the, the Qur'an. And you can see in those manuscripts, even like the Fatha, the Dhamma, the Wow, some of these, uh, you know, don't, don't um, uh, exist. Um, and... The other thing that I just wanted to comment on, Jody, that you were saying, you know, how you were saying, you know, in your in your class that, um, you know, to some extent, a lot of these tools that we have, like you were saying, they've kind of softened us, you know, in the modern society. And probably what you've experienced from some of those like nomads and the way that people memorize Quran in some of the, the other countries uh, like Mauritania or even in Egypt or, you know, Libya and many other countries in the, in the Muslim world that... You know, it's it, it's much more um, difficult, and there's much more kind of emphasis put on kind of like hard work. Um, and I think you know sometimes in the West uh, we do get softened, and even modern society. It's not necessarily to the West. Even sometimes here in Saudi Arabia, because you know it's quite a wealthy country. Um, you know, we've got all these devices, all of these things um, to make our lives easier. And at the at the same time, but although we're making our lives easier, which we see as a benefit, sometimes it makes us, you know, lazier to some extent. And um, we should keep on, on on trying our best, even in that kind of lazy uh, uh, mind state. Try to change that mindset. So listen to this um, story. This story will blow your mind. To be honest, so there was a time when you know there's a time in the middle of the day in a hot country where everyone usually has a siesta because it's too hot to go out. So Omar went out at this time because he was so hungry from extreme hunger. And then 
he saw Abu Bakr and they started asking each other why are you out at this time and Abu Bakr said I'm here for the same reason I'm so hungry as well and then they saw the Prophet and they asked him and the Prophet said I'm out for the same reason as well I'm so hungry and there was a man, one of the, mm. one of the Sahaba, who was called Abu Ayyub, he was like the neighbor of the Prophet, and they went to his house, and Abu Ayyub was surprised, because it wasn't the time that the Prophet usually came. So he wasn't ready, if you like. So his, mm. his wife opened the door, and he was working, he had like an orchard or a garden. He was working, he was in one of the trees. And his wife said, the Prophet is here. And Abu Bakr and Omar are with him. And he was like shocked, he came, oh my God, sorry. You know, it's not the time that you usually come sit down. And he went to his garden and it, it says that he got three different types of dates, so like fresh mm. dates, uh, dried dates, and also there was a type of dates they ate that like before they were ripe, I think, or something mm. like that, unripe dates. And he bought all these three types of dates, and um, you know, the Prophet وسلم, said, You didn't have to go to all this effort, or you didn't have to bring us so much, and then. The Prophet وسلم, said, This, what we're eating now, this is the luxuries. This is the luxury that we're going to be asked about on the, on the Day of Judgment. Mm. And subhanAllah, like, yeah, like if, if the Prophet وسلم, said, said that about that, uh, you know, three types of days then you, your mind mm. can't even comprehend the luxury and the, the ease and the comfort uh, that we have now. But I was going to mention one That's other fun. point, is that I don't, you know, we always, always have a chance to improve. We always have a chance to improve. Mm. There's a very um, inspirational story that I read recently, was the great, the great Imam Abu Hanifa, when he, on one occasion, Abu Hanifa, he was uh, walking into the mosque and he heard people talking about him. And they were, they were like uh, bigging him up. They say, oh, you know, he never sleeps at night and he does this and he does, he's an amazing person. And he, Abu Hanifa, said to himself, from this day on, I'm not going to allow people to say things about me that I didn't actually do. Meaning, mm. all those things they're saying about me, I'm going to actually do it. And it says from that yes, day on, wow. I think for, for 40 years, he would be worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all night. But the point I'm trying to make is the way the way you respond to things. 
So he could have, mm. you know, someone might hear something and, and become like depressed, like, oh, I'm nothing like that, or oh, I'm so terrible, I'm this. Or you could say, I'm going to make sure I am like that, or I'm going to strive yeah. to become even better than that. So I think sometimes in life, um, it's about the way we, res- we respond to things that happen to us. That's the important thing. Yeah. You know, for me personally, um, I always see like, so to be honest, like so many weaknesses and deficiencies in myself, but the only positive thing I try and stick to is thinking I've always got another chance to like, to when I wake mm. up tomorrow, it's always another chance to start again. Yeah. Like even if I yeah. if I'm in the evening, I think, oh, what have I done today? I've wasted my time. What am mm. I doing? I always think there's another chance. So I think yeah. this, as as believers, as Muslims, and as inshallah, strong human beings, we have to always think we can start again. Today's a new day. Let's yeah. start again, inshallah. And even even just to like be a Muslim to have fallen into a sin and then recognize that that is a sin and then consciously being like, this is what I've done wrong. This is a sin. Astaghfirullah. Now I'm going to do my best to never fall into that sin again. Even that, that Allah has given you the opportunity to be alive in order to do that is something that we, you know, I myself, alhamdulillah, many times I've, I've fallen into to sins and things that have happened and, I've, Allah has given me that chance to be alive to say astaghfirullah and that's something that you have to say alhamdulillah for you know that that you had that chance because how many people they died and they didn't get that chance and you know that in itself is is a great blessing that whoever we are we're alive now we can look at sins that we've done in the past and we can seek repentance for them and especially in the month of mercy where if we ask Allah sincerely and while we're standing in prayer at night, Allah will forgive these these sins. And this brings me to one point, um, Jody, because I kind of wanted to just um, bring bring in two little parts of your journey, kind of the point where you embraced Islam. And also um, we were talking about first how me and you had gone from zero to nothing. And so I just wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about your journey from going from absolutely nothing not knowing even the letters of the arabic language to memorizing the whole book of allah but there was one point that i remember you just before you converted to islam um you were actually you had actually prayed and learned how to pray and fasted actually in ramadan right before you were a muslim and you know you talked about this in a bit more detail on a couple of other podcasts but there was a time where you called me and it'd be good, maybe you could fill us in from that call up until you embraced Islam. And it was like you were worried about things that you'd done in your life. And I had told you, it doesn't matter what you've done. Because even if your sins were to reach the sky, Allah can still forgive you. I remember that conversation very well. And may Allah reward you for that. And the true believer always sees their sins as a mountain that's about to fall on top of them. And 
this is something we always think about. And what what's incredible is that if you read the stories of the Sahaba and the Tabi'in, who after the prophets were the, the best of creation, they had these feelings as well. You read amazing stories mm. how you know how seriously they took their mistakes and their sins and how they always were so persistent in asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive them. Um you know, I was reading the story of uh, Al Qasim ibn Muhammad, who is the grandson of Abu Bakr, and was an amazing, amazing individual when you read his story, amazing story. And when he was on his deathbed, he, he said to the, the people with him, he said, if I, if I pass away now, when I pass away, don't stand at my grave saying, he was this, he was that, he was this. He said, wallahi, I wasn't anything. I wasn't anything. Mm. And I just, that, that, that statement really touched my heart that because you can tell how sincere the statement was. How, how sincerely mm. he believed, he truly believed that all his life's efforts, and we're talking about a, a huge a mountain of a person, a lion of a person, and he said, I was nothing, because they just, you, you, you should always um, see your own mistakes a lot more than the mistakes mm. of others. And this isn't yeah. to say, to not be a confident person or not be a, you know, have have uh, confidence in your own abilities and be an ambitious person. But you have to have this humility. You have to have this humility. Mm. And to be honest, how can you not? Like, honestly, how mm. can you not? When you, if anyone today, if you look at your own life, uh, don't compare your life to the people around you. Compare your life to your heroes, to the people of the past, mm. and you really see that we are, we, we actually are nothing. <laughs> this this uh, yes, person wow. from the Tavi'in was saying he was nothing, but he was a great individual. We actually are nothing. Yeah. Um, yes, but wow. at the same time, there's so much we can achieve. There's so much we can achieve. Yeah. And our goals should be high. Our, go our, our, our aspirations should really be high. We should aim for the stars. Why not? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can yeah. give you the ability to do anything you want to do and to achieve anything you want to achieve. And I remember mm. when I first became a Muslim, I remember I actually uh, went to Venezuela for, for you know about eight or nine months just after I became a Muslim and I was working as a journalist. And I remember when I went into a mosque, I would see, when I went into a masjid, I would see people sitting down reading the Quran. And at the time I couldn't read Arabic. Um, and I remember thinking like, oh, that'd be so cool to be able to just open a yeah. Quran and just read it. 
Like that was so amazing to me to think like, imagine what a blessing that is. You can just go, you can just pick up a Musa and just start reading it. And now Alhamdulillah, uh, I can read the Quran and I, 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 you know, I teach people the Quran and Alhamdulillah, you know, teach people to read and things like that. So that in itself is like a, a huge, uh, a huge jump. Um, so I think yeah. it's that mixture of of realizing the greatness of your own deficiencies, but also realizing mm. the vastness of the mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and the fact that He can give you the ability to achieve anything. Allah. Yeah. So just to fill in there, Jody, um, like we we you know we said from from that call to you becoming Muslim, um, do you remember the period of time? Was it, it was quite close, right? I think then you, you embraced Islam not, not shortly after that. Um, I think it was like the next and, day. You know, I think it was like, honestly, like okay. the next day. Because what's, what's okay. interesting about that conversation is that obviously I'd, I'd lived in a Muslim country. Um, you know, mm. I had, including yourself, I had a lot of Muslim friends. Um, and I'd even, people find this kind of strange or unusual, but I'd even, you know, done things like a few days, maybe a couple of weeks before, uh, started praying Salah and even like a year mm. or two before fasting Ramadan and doing things like that. Yeah, and when I, when I said that to you, that was almost like, you know, sometimes in life, even as a Muslim, you have an objective or, or something you want to do. And at the last moment, Shaitan comes and gives you doubts. Oh, but yeah. this might happen. And this is something as Muslims, we need to uh, ignore these doubts, inshallah. If you want to do yeah. something positive in your life, rely on Allah and do it. Wallahi, just do it. Because these doubts are always going to come, and if we live, if we live our life uh, according to doubts and what ifs, we're not going to get anywhere. So that was literally like yeah. that. I remember, you know, I'd become quite close. Maybe you could say I'd become close to Islam, and I had this doubt. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm such a terrible person. It's a ridiculous, uh, ridiculous thing. Um, yeah. I had to do that. Alhamdulillah. And then so, um, you know, you, you you went to the masjid, right? I wasn't there at the time that you took shahada, but you went to, was it East London Masjid that you took your shahada in? SubhanAllah, that, that, that night I went to East London Mosque, uh, East London Masjid, and I remember it was like pouring with rain. It was in the evening, it was raining mm. really heavily, and we drove there, and um, we got out, and Alhamdulillah, the masjid was shut for the night. <laughs> so, so um, the next morning, um, we went to another. I think it was in Greenwich, like a near a nearby masjid. Um, yeah. So yeah, Qadrullah Masha. Mashallah, Mashallah. And then so now, um, you you embraced Islam, and you like you said you went quite 
you know, quickly after you embraced Islam to Venezuela, um, you were working there as a journalist, but you had this, you know, um, desire to to read Quran and memorize Quran. What were the kind of first steps that you took and in 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 that journey of of learning and memorizing Quran? Um, I mean, you you have to start with the basics, right? So alhamdulillah, I I could actually uh, speak a bit, a bit a little bit of Arabic from my time in uh, Palestine, but I didn't know how to read read or write Arabic. So alhamdulillah, you just have to start with the letters, uh, the sounds, then putting letters together, um, and I can't actually remember like the exact step for step journey uh, mm. that I I remember took. I remember I, I I gave you the book and I think we just did it very you know briefly these books that mm. were actually taught to me by uh, an amazing uh, brother called Muhammad Halal who yeah. in northwest London has kind of taught so many people how to read the Quran and sometimes I reflect upon that because he's literally like all of these new Muslim reverts get sent to him and yeah, then he yeah, teaches yeah. them how to read. And then, like, imagine he taught me how to read Arabic. And then yeah. he gets the students that he has to teach other people how to teach Arabic. And then, yeah, subhanAllah, you don't realize that the student of his student becomes someone like you, Jody, who memorized the whole Quran and now is a Quran teacher. And maybe there are many others from his teaching that are also in a similar way. So, and and all that reward is going back to the brother, subhanAllah. It's amazing, Wallahi. And someone said to me, like, you know, uh, if you have a if you have a child, and um, almost that like the parents should compete for who teaches them a fatiha, because that child, mm, imagine yeah. how many times they're going to recite a fatiha in their life. But yeah, I do remember, yeah, I think yeah. there, was a, there were a few uh, books, I think they were produced by the Malaysian government, I believe. Yeah. And they were kind of uh, these small booklets, um, just teaching the basics of uh, Tajweed and the basics of the letters and a kind of step-by-step -step process. So I do remember going through those. And then I, I always tell my, my students this. I remember the first times trying to read the Quran from the Mus'haf. I particularly remember reading Surah Al-Rahman from the Mus'haf mm. and, and how, slow, how slow I was at reading, like yeah. really concentrating on every word and every ayah. Um, so, you know, if you're at the start of your journey, if you like, uh, don't think that you're always going to be reading like that. It's just yeah. a step-by-step -step process. I think if you put a lot of time and dedication, you can actually progress very quickly. And, you know, there's people sure. from all all different backgrounds and all different uh, nationalities and ethnicities who recite the Qur'an very very proficiently and sometimes even more proficiently than than Arabs who were born with Arabic as their mother tongue. So I think with the mm. Quran, particularly like focus on Tajweed, focus on your pronunciation, and then 
when you get a bit further down your journey, one thing that I found really, really helpful and important when I was memorizing the Quran is reading the meaning or understanding the meaning. And I always found if there was a page or a rubber I was trying to memorize, if I understood the meaning first, it was much, much, much easier to memorize. And some of my yeah. students have confirmed the same thing because it yeah. becomes a story and a guide and the Quran is supposed to be a guide, right? Rather yeah. than just a set of sounds. Even if you don't understand yeah. it, you'll still be rewarded for reciting it. But I think the understand the comprehension is very, very, very important. Yeah. And you know the, the amazing Definitely. thing about the Quran, I've been uh, reading a number of stories recently about the I've been translating actually a collection of stories about the Sahaba, the companions, and the Tabi'in, the generation after them as well, which was an ama a very inspirational thing to do. But you you yeah. you read about all these different Sahabas. Some were, you know, some were known for being great warriors. Some were known for being uh, mm. for their charity. Some were known for their worship, and so on. Yeah. But almost every story you read, there'll be a section that says, and the thing they were most attached to was the Quran, or the thing they were most Allah. dedicated to was the Quran, or the thing they are most, uh, most in love with or most devoted to was the Book of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that really drives the point home. And to be honest, like, I need to improve. Wallahi, I really, really need to improve uh, in my relationship with the Qur'an. But it just drives this point home that all the different people we're inspired by, from the Sahab and the, and the Tabi'in, whether yeah. they were fighters, whether they were Imams, whatever they were, they all had a strong connection to the Qur'an. And, you know... Wherever you are, whoever you are, start that relationship today. And if you're not a Muslim, yeah, yeah. the same thing. Because, it, you know, you know, there's some people that I've spoken to that are not Muslims. I always think that religion is such a major facet of the human experience that to be ignorant, to be ignorant of it is really uh, not acceptable, to be honest. Like, and that mm. it's become something I've noticed to be quite prevalent in uh, Europe, at least. I don't know about other parts of the world, of religion just being seen as, at best, unimportant, or at worst, yeah. backwards, if you like. Yeah. And it's really a strange uh, phenomenon because you wouldn't say that about any other field of human endeavour. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't mm. just say, you know, oh, history, it doesn't matter, or science, it doesn't matter, or math, yeah. it doesn't matter. And the same goes for religion. And if you look at, like, you know, so many great thinkers and, and major figures in history had a firm faith and a firm belief in the Creator, whether they're Muslim or not. Mm. Um, 
So I think yeah. that. I think it's got, uh, you know even Allah, Allah talks about in the Quran when He says you know like like you're saying there's this whole thing especially in Europe about being progressive and science and innovation towards the future and you have to be you know within this progressive liberalist kind of scientific uh way of thought and that religion is kind of like um old and backwards and you know Allah says that you know that they will say that these are just tales of old and stories of old you know subhanallah so even these things that they're they're these agendas that they're kind of talking about Allah's already said this is what the disbelievers will say yeah, yeah, you know, it's like kind of modern, uh, modern life in Europe or the modern Western uh, discourse or um, set of. I mean, it's not even a, it's not even a set of principles, but kind of um, lack of principles, you might say. Yeah, it's something yeah. that I taught to my my taters, my grandmother on my on my dad's side. I talked to her a lot about, and you know, my grandparents are late late seventies, early eighties now, and they're mm. shocked. They're shocked, you know, just to see uh, how far things have come in terms of like uh, issues like uh, gender and things like this. Um, yeah. You honestly feel yeah. like you feel like you're the only normal one. <laughs> But sometimes I say to my, mm-hmm. I say to my tater, you know, issues, because she said to me, she said, out of my grandchildren and so on, it's refreshing to talk to someone who sees things the way I see them. I said, listen, yeah. you could talk to any Muslim in the world and they'll, they'll have the same opinion. So it's, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not something that's, um, I- Jody, so um, in terms of in terms of you know you taught us through some of those basic steps in the beginning of journey in your journey of of memorizing the Quran, what was the point where you thought to yourself, and I, I think you were living in London at the time, you thought to yourself, you know what, I'm going to drive, like you know obviously this is not a kind of normal thought that pops into most people's heads. Right, but what was the point where you thought, you know what, I'm just going to drive to Mauritania and, and you know go by car um, all the way to Mauritania and start memorizing Quran there? Maybe you could uh, let us know how would, how that who, thought process went. Come on, man. who would not want to do that? Who would not want to drive to Mauritania? Man? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy, bro. Like uh, um, Mauritania was a I heard about Mauritania a few different times. It's like it's like the the the, the name of a country kept popping up. I remember I was talking to a, mm. a, a Lebanese man in Venezuela, this guy called Talal, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, like if you want to learn Quran, Mauritania is an amazing country called Mauritania." I remember a couple of other people mentioning it. And um, it's funny because that, you know, when I was younger, I used to just do things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Even when I look back now, um, I just think, you know, in some ways I think 
what was I thinking? <laughs> and you know, yeah. like, but it, it, it was seems a... like it seems like driving through the desert for hundreds of miles without seeing a house. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or or like um, I mean, quite for a few seconds, quite a scary experience when I was driving. Yeah. Across the border, the border between Morocco and Mauritania is a is a basically a no man's land, and something I did yeah. I honestly didn't know at the time, and that I've uh, read more recently is that in this no man's land, if you go off the path, and when I say the path, there isn't a path. <laughs> there isn't a marked path, but if you go off this narrow strip of land, there's actually quite a, yeah. a lot of landmines in this, which I honestly didn't know about. So I handed it there. Um, but um, the first time oh, I've, I've been across this border a few times, but the first time I have to say, in my younger years, looking back, I think I was a bit uh, overconfident at times, um, a bit, a bit too full of myself, you might say. And yeah. I got to the, I got to the border, and on the Moroccans, on the Moroccan side, they're saying like, "Oh, you know, you need like a guide. You need, you need a guide to get across the border." It's only, it's only like, what you know. You can see the other side. It's not that far. Sorry, so you can't yeah. see the other side. That's the thing. It's probably yeah. it's like one kilometer, two kilometers, and say, like, oh, you need a guide. It's really tricky. And I was like, whatever. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll be fine. I've just driven Thanks. from London, mate. I was like, listen, <laughs> I, if I can't drive, like, I'll do it on my own. Thank you very much. And that was a big mistake, <laughs> my friend, because. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started driving, and then it's basically there's the so it's a no man's land. It's not part of Morocco. It's not part of Mauritania, and it's desert. And there's no, at least at the time I was there, there was no signage telling you what way to go. <laughs> so, like everything just looks the same. So I was trying to like follow the tracks in the sand, basically, of where other trucks were driving, but I couldn't see anything. And then at one point I was driving, I must have like slightly gone off the track or something, and my car got stuck in the sand. Like it was literally stuck in the sand. Um, oh no. So I was like, like I didn't know what to do. That's subhanallah. You know, I couldn't see anything. Very hot, middle yeah. of the day. How did you get out? So I got out my. I kind of. I think I beat my horn a few times. I got out my car, and I was just standing there, like literally just thinking, "What am I gonna do?" Because the the wheels are like really stuck in the sand, and then um. I turned around and all of a sudden these two guys were just running towards me. Like they kind of just appeared from nowhere. Yeah. And they were wearing, 
they were wearing the kind of traditional uh, uh, Mauritanian uh, turban that they they wrap across their face to protect from the sand. Yeah. So you can just see you can just see your eyes covers your head and your, the bottom half of your face. They're wearing those. And I was like, okay. Mm. And then they got over to me and they're like, um, they're like, oh, like, should we help? Do you, do you need help? And I was like, yeah, that my car's stuck. And they helped push my car out. And then they said, listen, we'll get in and we'll, we'll uh, you know, pay us and we'll help you get to the other side. And I was like, okay, cool. So we negotiated a price. They got in and we went. And they're literally directing me like like almost inch by inch which way to go. Um and mm. then I said to them, I was like, I said, where where were you? <laughs> 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 because it's like there was no one else there. I said where where did you come from? And they said, "Oh, we we just sit there and wait for people to to get stuck." <laughs> <laughs> so said, that's a that's a that's a strange um job to kind of describe. They isn't said it? that's like, our job. We just sit. We've got a little yeah. tent there. We just we just wait for people's cars to get stuck. And I was like, I was really like, I couldn't believe it. And I said, well, I said, how often does that happen? Because it seemed like, you know, a reasonably quiet world. And they said, um, they said so, some days it happens once or twice. And um, some days it doesn't happen at all. So I was like, you just sit there all day. <laughs> Subhanallah, Subhanallah. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So so you made it and and you made it to the other side. And obviously before that, you know, you'd driven all through um, Europe to get to that border. Um, Yeah. And how how was driving through Europe? Well, the first time I actually got a ferry to Spain, um, drove all the way through Spain. Um... To be honest, I have had some kind of uh, um, racist encounters in Spain and France as well. Mm. Um, like, I remember once, I remember being pulled over a couple of times in Spain. Um, so this particular time, I was driving, like, really carefully because, like, um, you know, I was in the middle of the countryside in Spain yeah, and you know I'd had a few experiences in Spain and I saw this uh, police uh, a policeman on a bike uh, following me from behind so I remember thinking like okay just drive like like immaculate driving just don't go too fast just drive completely not but I was kind of nervous because you know I'd had a few experiences So I was driving completely normally and, um, you know, just following me, following me, middle of nowhere, very beautiful, like, rural area. And then after a few minutes, he indicated for me to pull over. So I was thinking, like, I literally haven't done anything. Like, you know, I I haven't, so, you know, he came over, 
and I speak could speak a little bit of Spanish, and he said something like, "Yeah, he said, um, oh, I saw your wheels kind of slight slightly go over the line." And I was like, you know, you know when you when you know it's like a um just a, a question of discrimination basically. Um Yeah. And I was like, you know, I couldn't believe it. I was like, okay. And he said, Yeah, the fine is um the fine is this much. And I said, Listen, like, you know, I kind of need the money I've got on me for petrol and expenses. I said, you know, is there any other way? And he said, listen, you, you have to pay the fine right now on the spot. I said, what happens if I can't afford it or I don't pay the fine now? He said, what happens is I'll accompany you to the next petrol station, take your keys off you and leave you there. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, um, I'll pay the fine. <laughs> but yeah, you know, you know I think... I think because of my appearance, a lot of people thought a lot of people in Spain and France kind of thought I was Moroccan, so or Arab or something, Arab or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I remember having experience yeah. in uh, France. There's quite a lot of racism in France. I remember having experience there where, um, where it was very early in the morning, and I was just waiting for a ferry back to the UK and um, there was this hotel so I just wanted to to I just wanted to um, use the bathroom basically and make make, make my wudu and do my do my prayer in the morning and um, I walked mm. into the reception and there was a, a woman at the reception and just as I walked into the entrance even before like before I'd got to the reception to ask her, she just stood up and was like, get out, get out. In French, she was saying, get out. And I was like, I was I wasn't, it was too early, like it was too early <laughs> in the morning. And um I, I was so I was quite stunned that I said, um, I said, Do you speak English? And she said, No, get out. And then she literally came over. And physically, like, you know, it's a, it's a middle-aged woman. Like, <laughs> she literally put <laughs> her hands on me, like, basically forced me to leave. I was like, I was shot. So I went somewhere else. And then um, later in the morning, um, at the front of the hotel, there was a cafe at the front. So I went into the cafe, and the same woman was now the waitress in the cafe. So I went oh, in. No without her seeing me and I I went I sat down at a table and I put my my car keys and my money and my passport my British passport on the table in front of me and she saw me I, I, I saw her look at me and she started walking towards me with like quite quite an aggressive uh, expression on her face like she was about to kind of kick me out again. And then as she got to the table, she saw my passport on the table. Yeah. And she was like, she, first of all, she, she suddenly learned how to speak English 
which was a miracle. <laughs> and and then she was like, "You're British," and I was like, "Yeah, I'm just waiting for my ferry." And she was like, uh, <laughs> "She's like, oh okay, what like what do you what would you like?" And I literally there was like a kind of there was like a kind of um buffet breakfast, and I was like, "I'm having everything." <laughs> <laughs> I asked her, I was like, you know, can you can you get me some toast and like some fruit? I was I was asking for everything, literally everything I could see yeah. on the table. Um but you know, it's, it's not nice to have those kind of experiences, but um yeah. it's just part of you know how the world is at the moment, to be honest. Yeah. Um yeah. but yeah. how do that, you know, you go to you go to Muslim countries. Uh, obviously, your experiences uh, couldn't be any more different. I remember getting, to, you know, Mauritania is a very t- tiring place to travel and a lot of um, hurdles and obstacles to overcome. But I remember getting to getting to the border, entering Mauritania. You know, this is like a two-week journey, and the soldiers there saying, "You know, you're you're so welcome here." And you know, stay as long as you like, and so very nice experience. Nice it actually reminds me, like when yeah. I when I was very young, before I was Muslim, going to Gaza. I went to Gaza, yeah, and uh, like just the kind of welcome and, and the hospitality. It really makes you feel like, uh, you know, nice you feel the 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 bond the bond of Muslims around the world, which is a good thing to remember because there's a lot of uh, division and uh, a lot of discord in the Muslim community and the Muslim nation today. But it's good to remember the things that draw us together as well. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, so uh, just to kind of wrap it up because I don't want to take too much of your your time, Jody, but... Obviously, you made that amazing journey through Europe to the border of, of Mauritania. And then once you were now in Mauritania, did you have anything planned? Did you have some kind of uh, thing planned? Or you just had in your mind, you you, you heard from people, oh, Mauritania is the place to go for the Quran. So you went there. You're now in Mauritania. Did you have a plan? My, pl- my, my aim was to memorize the Quran. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know where to go, and I remember when I was when I was driving from the north uh, down to the capital Nouakchott, I um I picked up a soldier on the way, like he was basically hitchhiking, um and mm. he was asking me like if I knew anyone in Mauritania where I was going to stay. I said oh, I I I don't I don't know anyone, and um. You know, he took me to this masjid, and I stayed there for a couple of nights. They were, they had like they had kind of a rooms attached to the masjid, and he said, "Oh, this guy's just driven here all the way from London." And they were like, "What?" I say, so, um, <laughs> "Can you imagine that?" I literally so yeah. they looked after me for a couple of nights, and then I remember I literally just got in my car. And drove around the city. I just thought, like, you know, I think sometimes in life you just have to 
you know, everything's very uh, digitalized. Everything's online now. But even today, sometimes in life, you just have to go out and you never know what who you're going to come across or what you're going to find. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like you have yeah. to be like the bird, the bird that's in its nest yeah. and it goes out and it doesn't know where it's going to find its provision and then it always comes back with its provision. So I just went out and just asked a couple of people and, you know, I remember, I remember there was one like, uh, there was one uh, uh, old man that I was asking for directions. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'll give you directions. And then he got in, like, he's like, yeah, go this way, go this way. And he's like, oh, thanks, I'm going to get off. I think I think he just wanted a ride. So, a free lift. He, yeah. He's like, anyway, good luck. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah I, just asked, I just asked around and then I I um, met a scholar and then he told me about a city just kind of like that, kind of like that, just by um, asking different people. But yeah, my, my main aim was to learn Quran. I remember when I got to the desert, you know, I got there in the evening. The, the, the next day, the temperature was unbelievably hot. And, you know, this is a country, you don't have air conditioning, you don't have anything like that. You're outside a lot of the time. And after one or two days, I thought I'm never going to survive one week. I honestly, I honestly thought the most I, I will last is three days. And mm. that kind of continued. Like after that, I was like, okay, maybe I can last two weeks. Maybe I can last a week. Maybe I can last a month. And I just kept going, alhamdulillah, and um, studied the Quran. I was memorizing Quran. So sometimes I think, you know, if you want to achieve something big, if you, you know, I've met people in Mauritania who, who went to study and they got to the desert and they said, I'm going to stay here for four years. And then after two months, they left. So it's better mm. to have a, a smaller, like a more short-term ambition. Achievable goals. Yeah, I think if you have a too overwhelming a goal, it becomes too much. You become defeated yeah. by it. But if you just look any any big thing you want to achieve, just break it down into steps and start with the first step. The most important thing is starting any endeavor, any mission. Yeah. Just start it, Shala. Plan it and start it. And, and uh, um, I remember actually. It was in Ramadan as well that I think I got back in touch with you. Or maybe I'd lost touch with you for like, you know, six months to a year or maybe a, a, a over a year. And I remember calling you and speaking to you. And I think you're in Mauritania at the time. And it was I think it was the Ramadan. And and I said, oh, yeah, how's it going? How's, you know, everything going with the Quran? And you were like, yeah, alhamdulillah, I'm doing maraja. I just finished uh, memorizing the Quran last month. Subhanallah. So, alhamdulillah. That, that was amazing. You know, you, not, I think not many uh, not many people have my phone number in Mauritania. Only one or two people. And I remember you calling me 
and I was just so amazing and I had, you know, hadn't spoken for a long time. Uh, but mashallah, I think if you have a, as brothers, if you have a good relationship, you can not talk to someone for a long time and then pick up yeah. where you left off, inshallah. I always think that yeah. there's a lot of people in my life that I haven't spoken to for a long time and I would like to speak to more. But inshallah, yeah. we will start speaking, inshallah, to all those people. Inshallah. Zakallah khair, Jody. And, um, you know, once yeah. again, thank you so much for, um, you know, coming, sharing some of your journey. I feel like obviously we could go on and on talking about more stories from that journey and, and from what you've done. But obviously, um, we might be here all day, my friend. So um, we'll, we'll let's wrap up there. And just maybe if you could give just a very small advice for people maybe who are listening to now and Zakalakher to anyone who stayed on um, listening to me and, and Jody. Um, obviously, you know, Jody's been been dropping some gems, mashallah, tabarakallah, but listening to myself, kind of blather on. Um, so um, if you could just give, you know, one advice to those people in terms of memorizing the Qur'an, um, someone who wants to start memorizing the Qur'an or isn't memorizing the Qur'an, what would be your top little, you know, just a short advice for people um, in this uh, uh, blessed month of Ramadan? Anything you want to do in life, you need a teacher. Or a mentor. This is something I've come to realize. Everything is very important to have a teacher. If you want to uh, get strong, it's good to have a mentor. If you want to work out, it's good to have a mentor. If you want to learn any subject, it's good to have a mentor. If you want to start a business, it's great to have a mentor. And if you want to learn the Quran, it's fantastic to have a teacher and a mentor. It's great to have a teacher. And the number one advice is, this is the advice. Start reading Quran today. Every single person, we all need to start reading Quran today. If you're listening to this, start reading Quran today. Look for a teacher and try your best. Everyone can do this. Everyone can memorize the Quran. You just have to start one ayah and one surah and one page at a time, inshallah. That's the advice. Get a teacher and start memorizing Quran. And let's just quickly uh, read a very beautiful section of the Quran. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, describes the, the believers, describes the slaves of the most compassionate and uh, how they are. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, rajim." <laughs> وَعِبَادُ الرَّحْمَنِ الَّذِينَ يَمْشُونَ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ حَوْنَا وَإِذَا خَاتَبَهُمُ الْجَاهِلُونَ قَالُوا سَلَامًا وَالَّذِينَ يَبِيتُونَ لِرَبِّهِمْ سُجَّدًا وَقِيَامًا وَالَّذِينَ يَقُولُونَ رَبَّنَا اصْرِفْ عَنَّا عَذَابَ جَهَنَّمَ إِنَّ عَذَابَهَا كَانَ غَرَامًا Inna 
وَالَّذِينَ لَا يَدْعُونَ مَعَ اللَّهِ إِلَٰهًا آخَرَ وَلَا يَقْتُلُونَ النَّفْسَ الَّتِي حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ إِلَّا بِالْحَقِّ وَلَا يَزْنُونَ وَمَن يَفْعَلْ ذَٰلِكَ يَلْقَ أَثَامًا يُضَاعَفْ لَهُ الْعَذَابُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ وَيَخْلُدَ فِيهِ وَيَخْلُدَ فِيهِ مُهَانًا يضاعف له العذاب يوم القيامة ويخلد فيه مهانا إلا من تاب وآمن وعمل عملا صالحا فأولئك فأولئك يبدل الله سيئاتهم حسنات فأولئك يبدل الله سيئاتهم حسنات So in this last ayah I just mentioned, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so he talks about people that will be punished. And then he says, Except whoever turns back to him and repents, and believes, and does good actions. So he's talking about people that maybe they've done bad things in the past, but now they've repented and turned back to him and believed in him and done good actions. He says, those people, he says, فَأُولَٰئِكَ يُبَدِّ اللَّهُ سَيِّئَاتِهِمْ حَسَنَاتِ These people who repent and turn back to him and do good actions, he changes their bad, their sins into hasanat, into good deeds. Mm. So imagine that, subhanAllah. And it says, yeah. yeah. mm. And Allah is the, the, of, the of forgiving and, and the all merciful. So, you know, this ayah is like a big inspiration for all of us because all these yeah. sins, all these bad things that we've done, if we just turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Insha'Allah is going to turn, change them, exchange them and turn them into good actions that will Insha'Allah yeah. be on our scales in our favour on the Day of Judgment Insha'Allah. Um, Jody, um, once again for joining us um, and what a beautiful advice at the end there. Um, you know, don't despair. To all the listeners out there, don't despair. Pick up the Mus'haf, start reading the Qur'an um, you know, ask Allah to forgive you for what you've done in the past and make a, a new page um, going forward. And today, um, you're listening to the Journeys podcast. Zakalakhir to our brother Jody. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.